Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Sebastiano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, the late, great Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, number 14, 512 career home runs, would look out over through the dugout on a sunny day at Wrigley Field and see the beautiful, sunshiny day and say, let's play two. Well, I'm in beautiful, sunshiny Florida. Unfortunately, we can't play two, but we can, we can do one great one. There you go. One great one. Episode 64. Moving along. To, uh, we have a, a, the guest tonight is going to tie into our sponsor. So uh, before we get to him, Benny, why don't you uh, give a shout out to old Boogie for us? Gladly. Dan and Benny in the ring is brought to you by Boogie's Wrestling Camp, founded in 1992 by wrestling legend Jimmy Valiant and his beautiful wife, Angel. BWC is situated in majestic, scenic Shawsville, Virginia, a.k.a. Parts Unknown, a.k.a. the middle of nowhere. Uh, whether you want to be a wrestler, manager, announcer, or valet, BWC is the place to be at BWC. You'll receive the best possible training from Jimmy and his amazing staff. You'll learn holds, bumps, psychology, and promos. The cost is just $250 down and $20 per session. Boogie's Wrestling Campus turned out 29 graduating classes. The most notable alumnus being the AEW World Champion, Hangman Adam Page. And when you join BWC, you're not just joining a wrestling school. You're becoming a part of the BWC family. Interested? Just visit Jimmy Valiant. Weebly.com for more information on Boogie's Wrestling Camp, BWC, the Ring of Dreams, where the dream becomes reality, and tell them Dan and Benny sent you. Now, I mentioned his students. We have a special guest on the line with us tonight. Uh, every school's got to have a number one, got to have a first. We're joined by Boogie's first student. This man has wrestled all around the country. He's wrestled for the NWA. Uh, I'm, I, I'm in Virginia, so his, his name's big down here. Uh, the Allied Independent Wrestling Federation. He's wrestled for Bruiser Wrestling Federation all over. Uh, we are joined by Frank the Tank Parker. Frank, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you, all guys, for having me. I appreciate that. So we, we mentioned you were the first uh, student of Jimmy Valiant's Boogie School, or Boogie Wrestling School. Um, but before we get into that, we always start, I got to ask, it's the same question we ask everybody because it's all the stories are so unique and so different. Uh, do, do you can you pinpoint the exact moment that, or do you remember the exact moment where you became a fan of wrestling, and at what moment you decided wrestling? That's what I'm going to do. Well, the first part of that question, when I first become a fan, it's really kind of hard for me to to nail that down because I've just been a fan my entire life. Um, my two older sisters, my older brother, were big fans. Uh, when I was born, I was sitting on their lap watching wrestling the day I come home from the hospital. Um, so I just kind of grew up watching it with the family and loving it and uh, really getting into it. Um, as we mentioned before we went on the air, you know, I was always a, a big fan of the the, the heels. And uh, I always loved, you know, cheering on the heels and uh, watching how it pissed my brothers and sisters off. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I just always, always a fan. It seemed like my entire life, about 10 years old, um, my brothers and sisters took me to my first live wrestling match. And 
I was just completely hooked from that point on. But uh, it seemed like I was a fan my entire life. Well, and then, then as far as the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was go- I was going to ask you to expand on that. Then transition from the from fan to in the ring. When did you say you know what wrestling? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wrestle. Well, that's I can definitely pinpoint that moment. That was a, a life changing moment for me. Um, spring of 1992, I uh, had I was out of school. I had blown opportunities to, to play college football. And uh, so I was just kind of floating around one meaningless job to the next, no clue what I was going to do with my life. I was completely lost, Um, you know, prayed to God for years to please help me find something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, as we talked before, I grew up a, a fan and a wrestling fan and loved it, but never thought that this would would happen to me. Um, but I ended up getting a part-time job at a car wash in Christiansburg, Virginia, spring of 1992. And, uh, of course, being a wrestling fan, I talked about it all the time, put my coworkers in headlocks and stuff on our brakes and, and, um, <clears throat> just really one particular, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> well, this one particular day, uh, I happened to be scheduled off from work that day. Uh, but lo and behold, Jimmy Valiant and his wife come through the car wash. And of course, you know, anytime Jimmy Valiant boogie woogie man gets in a crowd, everybody loses their minds and running up to him, wanting his autograph and talking to him and wanting pictures with him. And so he's at the car wash and everybody's talking to him. And he happens to mention that he's moved to the area and he's opening up a wrestling school it's going to open up in September of 1992, and if you have, if you know anybody that might be interested, send them my way. Of course, the first person they all thought of was me because obviously I talked about it all the time at work. So, uh, make a long story short, a buddy of mine that worked there at the car wash, John Meredith, we called him Little John. He um, he come and told me about Jimmy Valiant moving to the area, and at first I'm skeptical. Yeah, right. You know, the boy from New York City's moving to Charlottesville, Virginia, the one stoplight town. You know, in the middle of nowhere. You got to be kidding me. But hey, you know, he's and he insisted on it, and he come by and picked me up. So we went to his house a couple of days later, pulled in the driveway, and here's this little modest white house, nothing fancy. You know, nice little house sitting on the back porch is Jimmy Valiant, his wife, and his son, Little Handsome. And I look at him, and you know, I'm thinking, well, he's got the hair, he's got the beard, but that's not the body that I remember the last time I seen Jimmy Valiant on TV. He was about 260, 270 at that time. And um, so... I'm still a little skeptical. I'm not sure if this is the real deal or not, but hey, I'm here. I'm in his driveway. I'll go talk to him. So we get out of the car. We walk up on the porch, and the second Boogie Woogie opened up his mouth, I knew exactly who it was. That was Jimmy Valiant. Holy crap. My heart just dropped to my stomach. My knees are getting weak. Please don't let me pass out right here on his porch. Um, 
he, you know, super nice guy, took me right in just as instantly as a family member, walked me up to his camp. It was still being built at that time. There wasn't no locker rooms, no sidewalk, nothing at that time. Takes me up there, shows me around, kind of gives me the rundown on how things are and how it's going to be run and prices and everything. And that was the moment. Long story to get to this point, but that was the moment that I knew this is what I'm going to do. God has answered my prayers. He has sent, you know, Jimmy Vangett to Shawsville, Virginia, 15 minutes from my house. And by God, I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to come up with the money, but I'm going to figure out a way if I got to go sell sperm or something. I'm going to figure out a way to get the money <laughs> so that I can... <laughs> So that I can do this camp because this is my dream. This is my goal. And as I said, God has sent him my way. That's the way I felt. So I went straight home, told my parents, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, my brother and sisters were all excited, but my mom and dad was a little skeptical, you know, football family. And, you know, we're I'm going to get into wrestling. My dad really wasn't into it. They were a little skeptical, but they were my biggest fans and biggest supporters. So they's like, this is what you want to do. We got you back. So September, 1992, I joined up the camp, very first one and um, dream come true. There you go. Frank. So not only were you the first student, you were the first instructor. Uh, you were the first to go out on the road with Jimmy. And I think you were also the first one to get a tryout with the, uh, the the then WWF. So uh, I wanted to ask you, describe, and this could probably take up the rest of the podcast, describe your time with Jimmy at camp, your time with Jimmy on the road. Um, and then also th there's a story about mountain goats that Jimmy told me about, and I wanted to hear, hear that from you as well. Uh, well, uh, as I said, you know, joining up at his camp, September 92, I was first student. I was his only student. For first couple of months, um, that's where I really felt like, you know, I got got a distinct advantage over a lot of the trainees today. Um, just with classes being so big, it's hard to get that one-on-one -on -one attention. And I was very fortunate to be able to get that for several months. Um, <clears throat> but it was every Sunday he would just, I mean, beat me, <laughs> beat me down like a dog, um, but teaching me the entire time. And every second of every thing he had me doing had a point and a purpose to it. Didn't always know what that purpose was, but I, this was my dream and I'm going to do anything he tells me to do. So like I said, I was very fortunate for several months. It was me and him by ourselves. Eventually we had a couple more students join up. Um, neither one of them lasted very long. One of them, realized it wasn't for him, you know, hey, it's not for everybody. So he gave it up. Another guy lasted a little bit longer than he ended up quitting. I think he may have got hurt or something. But then it was back to me and Boogie again by ourselves. And a uh, couple more months and uh, getting more, like I said, more one-on-one -on -one attention, which I was just soaking up like a sponge. And um, then eventually word started getting out, that, you know, his camp was there and people started coming by. And then the next thing you know, he's starting to get more and more students. And I think the first graduating class was about six people. Um, 
and then it's gradually grown since. But um, but yeah, that was uh, that was a very very good learning experience having all that one on one time with him and just picking his brain and soaking up everything he ever he told me and taking it all to heart and um, you know then being able once I graduated being able to go out on the road with him. Um, I traveled with him for about five years. Um, and you know, we, we would usually come home late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, sleep a couple hours, have camp, be at home Monday and Tuesday and head back out Wednesday. And, you know, Tennessee one night, North Carolina, the next night bouncing all over the place. And, um, it, it was an amazing time. And, you know, something that I'll never forget, and I learned so much from him. We, we still and haven't addressed the mountain, the mountain goats, goats though. Where, where, yeah, yeah. the baby face <laughs> or well, heels? The mountain goats. I was hoping we could forget about that. <laughs> but no, the mountain goats. Um, anybody that's been to, to Boogie's camp knows it sort of sits on the side of a mountain, and um, you know there are several steep embankments all around this camp, and. So he had goats, you know, when he first opened up his camp, he, uh, down where you, the, the parking lot where you pull in at, he had that all fenced off so the goats couldn't get out. And it was my job to open up the fence every Sunday. But, um, he had goats running around, you know, they had to eat the grass and, and keep, keep the grass cut down. And, but part of our, part of my training was shoveling the goat shit. And oh, Boogie used to tell me it was just like the the um, movie Karate Kid, how the he's training the young kid and it's wax on, wax off. Boogie's like, well, it's the same thing as the wax on, wax off, but it's shovel the shit and toss it over here. I, I think and, I'd rather uh, paint the fence or sand the floor, personally. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was kind of part of my training was shovel the goat shit out of the path and out of the way. So we wasn't stepping on it and tracking it all over the place. And, and, uh, yeah, that was, so he was teaching me the karate kid wax on wax off deal. <laughs> That's funny. That's from the, uh, the R rated version of the, the remake of the karate kid that came exactly. out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what though? I'll bet, uh, I'll bet you you've got the good back muscles for uh for the the slams and falls you learn later, right? Oh uh, well, yeah, that was part of the training. Like I said, everything he did, I didn't always understand why, but it always it had a purpose. And um, I guess he was building up those back uh, back muscles and them shoulder muscles. Uh, you know, getting rid of the getting some free labor there, but getting rid of some goat goat shit anyway, and uh, giving me some training, killing three birds with one stone. I guess. <laughs> There you go. You you mentioned obviously you mentioned being a fan of heel wrestling and obviously you got a lot of one-on-one training especially on the road and and through apparently Benny some methods that are unique shall we say the Rather least unconventional. Yeah, unconventional. That's a good word for it. You got some unique training from Jimmy. I'm curious were there other wrestlers at the time or people you worked with or studied with that influenced your in-ring style? Well, you know, growing up as a kid, I always loved, you know, Nature Boy Ric Flair. Um, I've obviously loved him as a heel. Um, you know, just I loved how he would, you know, get his tail beat 
two-thirds of the batch and then somewhere at the end, you know, pull it out with a handful of tights or the feet on the ropes and just watch the people lose their minds after seeing their, their favorite wrestler get cheated. Um, I always just ate that up. But I was never the flashy robe and the Rolex watches and alligator shoe kind of guy. I'm a simple guy. So my in-ring style was more influenced by the bigger muscle head type guys. I'm a big guy. You know, I'm about 6'3", about 280. And um, so, you know, I always kind of, you know, favored more of my in-ring style with the bigger guys. I was always a fan of, you know, Road Warriors and, and um, uh, Lex Luger, Sid Vicious, um, you know, just the bigger muscle head guys. I was always loved the power moves and, you know, throwing the guys around and pressing them over their head and the big power slams. And so that's kind of, you know, my style more went not one particular person that I took things from, but just a variety of people. Mostly, like I said, all the bigger muscle head guys, I always kind of, you know, took a little bit from each one of the guys, that, them guys. I've been kind of referred to every once in a while as my ring style was a lot like uh, Dr. Death Steve Williams at one time. Um, and I was always a big fan of his, and I loved his running bulldogs and running power slams and the things that he used to do. Um, so that's kind of where my in-ring style come from, just kind of a variety of different people, picking a little bit from each person and um, trying to make it my own. So Frank, were you uh, were you uh, um, an NWA uh, Jim Crockett promotion fan growing up? Oh, oh yeah, that's uh, that's really the only wrestling we had uh, on TV as a kid growing up. Um, you know, I come from a you know a big family, didn't have a lot of money. You know, I was we had the rabbit ear antennas, and I was my dad's remote control standing at TV turning the channel for him. And um, so we didn't have, but, you know, a few channels. Only wrestling I was able to watch was Jim Crockett Promotions, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up watching watching that. And like I said, my brothers and sisters took me to some wrestling matches they had at Roanoke Civic Center. And, and um, you know, got to see all the guys I watched on TV, Wahoo, Wahoo McDaniels and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood and Blackjack Mulligan and, you know, it was just so, so great seeing those guys in person and, and uh, you know, getting their autographs. Here we are, you know, 40 years later, and I still got gimmick pictures of those guys that I got when I was a kid. So um, I was a big Jim Crockett Promotions fan. Mid-Atlantic, to me, ranks right up there with Memphis and uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida as, like, the greatest territories. Yes, I never really, growing up as a kid and even into my teenage years, I didn't really get an opportunity to see much uh, wrestling from Florida, but I was lucky enough to get to watch a lot of Memphis wrestling, mostly tapes, um, but um, I love the Memphis-style wrestling. I always loved just the old-school storytelling and, um, you know, was very, very lucky that was able – during the years of traveling with Boogie, him taking me to to uh, Memphis and and uh, getting to wrestle there, and um, you know Mid South Coliseum, a a dream of mine to be able to wrestle inside that building and uh, being able to do it for 
you know, for, for those uh, Jerry Lawler and that promotion. So it was that was an amazing time. Well, let me ask you, as we as we look at, at obviously you're coming up and, and at this point in the story of the career, when you started traveling on the road with Jimmy, was that the beginning of it uh, or was that much later? Like once you were trained and started getting into it, where, where did you start actively start wrestling? Well, I trained from September 92 to September 93. Uh, graduated in September 93. Uh, I had probably four or five matches during that year, um, but um, was mainly focused on training and, you know, learning my trade and uh, really wasn't too focused on having too many matches at that time. Uh, but after I graduated in, like I said, September 93, I immediately went on the road with, uh, with Boogie and, um, was on the road with him from uh, till about um, um, spring, roughly, of 97. Um, I decided that maybe back that time it was time for me to kind of break off, try to make a little name for myself. Um, you know, I wanted to, you know, didn't want to didn't want to spend my whole career, at, you know, no disrespect, but I didn't want to just be considered Boogie's boy. I wanted to be my own guy. And um, so, you know, spending those five years traveling with uh, with Boogie, you know, that's uh, I learned so much. And, um, you know, we wrestled for so many different promotions. We really wasn't in the same promotion very often because we'd be in one town one night and then drive all night long to get to the next town, wrestle for another promotion and then turn around and do it over again. And uh, then in about 97 is when I, like I said, I decided I wanted to kind of break off, make a little name for myself, start doing my own thing. And um, that's when I started work wrestling for promotions, you know, a little more regularly. Uh, Southern States Wrestling in Tennessee, Bo James, the promoter, I wrestled for him a lot. Um, you know, uh, Appalachia Pro Wrestling in West Virginia, we wrestled there every Tuesday night for years. Uh, Ward Wilson was the promoter there. So, you know, I just wanted to break off and kind of do my own thing. And at that point, you know, there was so many places to go wrestle. I mean, you could almost wrestle every night of the week if you was willing to travel. And um, so, you know, there was plenty of places to go wrestle. And I said, I wanted to get out and make a name for myself. And, um, you know, I, I'm glad I did. I was always able to reconnect with Boogie. And, you know, we were going to a sh the same show together. We would hook up and ride together again. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, I just I, I felt like that after five years with Boogie, it was it was kind of time about 97. I wanted to start doing my own thing. This this time in the beginning when you were traveling, you mentioned like, <clears throat> excuse me you mentioned ssw and all that this was during your your team with uh roger anderson right yes we were death and destruction yep um actually bo james uh promoter of southern states wrestling he is the one that um he was good friends with boogie and he had come to the camp several times scouting out new talent for his promotion and uh he seen me and liked me. I was a big guy and he liked my style and, um, of course, trust anything, you know, Boogie told him I was good and he, he's going to take Boogie's word for it. So, you know, he, I started work wrestling for him and then Roger Anderson, he, um, 
started coming in and he was trying to make a little name for himself and he started doing it we're having a few matches there and uh this one particular show Bo ends up putting me and roger against each other and it was just you know sometimes you just everything clicks it's hard to explain but it was like instant you know just we had we had karma we just everything clicked our match was just absolutely flawless Bo fell in love with it and come up with the idea that night of hey you guys would make a good heel tag team you're both big rough looking um let's put y'all together he put us under masks at first and uh, i hated wearing a mask but um you know do whatever they want me to do so we wore the masks for a few months and once we got rid of the masks um we come up with our name death and destruction and uh, by late 97 um things were just taken off for us we um you know we were doing tours in mexico uh did wwf shows went to memphis did stuff there smoky mountain wrestling with jim Cornette. um things kind of took off for us at that point frank you mentioned a lot of different promotions and so i, I had a couple of questions um who was your favorite promoter and why and then I, the second part of the question is, do you have any horror stories about a promoter not taking care of you financially? I would think, you know, the fact that you're going with Boogie probably alleviated a lot of that. But, like, when you were on your own, did you ever have any problem getting paid? Well, you know, as far as favorite promoters, um, you know, there's just so many of them. It's hard to, you know, I don't try to name them all. I feel like I'm going to leave one out. But, you know, I feel like that, you know, being trained by Boogie and everybody obviously knowing Boogie and loving him. And then those five years that I spent traveling with him and people kind of putting me and him together. And, you know, I didn't, I, you know, I, everybody just treated me so good. Um, but, you know, I have to mention Bo James with Southern States Wrestling. I've mentioned him before, but like I said, he's the one that put me and Roger together. Um, you know, he's the one that, you know, helped make the phone calls and get us in Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine and, you know, start getting us some uh, some publicity. So, you know, I you know, I feel feel a sense of loyalty to Bo for everything that he done for me back when I was getting started and breaking off on my own and me and Roger trying to get things going. Bo was a he was a, a real big part of that. But there's just so many other promoters. They all treated me so good. Um, you know, I've tried to build up a good reputation, you know, on my own. Like I said, I didn't want to always just be considered Boogie's boy. I wanted to be my own man. And, um, but I took everything Boogie ever taught me and I took that with me when I broke off on my own. And, you know, you treat people with respect and you do what you ask and, you know, you show up early and you stay late and, you know, you do everything you, you, you know, you're supposed to do and you develop a, you make a reputation for yourself. And that's kind of what I felt like I did. And so many you know, like I said, they just so so many of those promotions just treated me so great, better than I could have ever expected. Just being a, a simple country boy from Christiansburg, Virginia, I never expected to live that type of lifestyle for as long as I did. But they all treated me so good. But um, you know, bad promoters, yeah, I've had I've had my taste of a few of them. Um, 
Don't like to throw anybody under the bus just simply out of respect, like Boogie always taught me. But there was one particular promoter that I remember uh, in West Virginia that uh, had a, a huge, huge show, brought in me and Boogie and uh, Mick Foley and, I mean, a bunch of names. It was a stacked card. And um, he didn't draw what he thought he was going to draw. So halfway through the show, he grabs what money there was, which was very little of it, but he grabbed it and took off. Left everybody standing, um, you know, seeing all these names and legends that I grew up watching just going berserk because they just got, you know, screwed out of hundreds, thousands of dollars. And, um, you know, I... Most of them ended up getting their money later. I never did, but I was just glad to be on the card at that point with all these legends. So um, I've had a few horror stories, but I have to say the good outweighs the bad. And for the most part, um, you know, every promoter I worked for treated me really good. Frank, I wanted to ask you a quick follow-up question because, and this is just my observation from, from hearing you, but, not, with Jimmy, it sounds like you really got a well-rounded education. So you learn, you learn the holes, you learn the psychology. But it, it sounds like besides that, you you learn from Jimmy how to conduct yourself as a professional wrestler, dealing with the promoters. Like you said, showing up early, doing what was asked of you. Did Jimmy spend a lot of time with you on that? Because it's that I've I've heard that from Jimmy, and it's it's very refreshing to hear that. Yes, uh, he did. He, you know, like I said, every minute of every training session, of every road trip, you know, it was always, I took it as a learning opportunity. You know, this is a man that has done it all. I can only hope and dream to do half of what he done in the wrestling business. And if he's going to take the time to tell me something, then by God, I'm listening to it and I'm taking, I'm soaking it all in. And um, so, I mean, he did. He worked a lot with me. He probably didn't even realize that he was teaching me stuff half the time because we'd be driving down the road and we're just both trying to keep each other awake. So we're just chatting back and forth. And he's probably don't even realize that he's just talking to me, but he don't realize he was actually teaching me things. And I was soaking it all in and taking every word, making a mental note of everything he said and you know still live by that today <laughs> but um but yeah he he gave me a you know there was always more to then to wrestling than just what you do in the ring you know it was how you conduct yourself out of the ring how you conduct yourself in the dressing room how you conduct yourself away from the arena um you know there was always it's more than just in ring you know yeah that's a big part of it but you know really that's you know, there's so much more to being a professional. You know, anybody can call themselves a wrestler or a football player or a basketball player. But if you're a professional, that word carries a lot of weight with it as far as I'm concerned. And that word professional is not just in the ring or on the field. It's, you know, it's outside of that as well. I can respect that. Speaking of calling yourself, I'm curious the the moniker Frank the Tank. Uh, looking up a lot of your older stuff, I mean, you've had that that nickname's been been you know for years. What what's the origin of that? Who who dubbed you Frank the Tank? Where did that that came, that name come from? 
<laughs> well, that come from my childhood. Um, I was always a big kid, always the biggest kid in my class, biggest kid on my little peewee football teams, and, um, you know, always the biggest kid. And <clears throat> But I was never the fastest kid. And, um, well, once I got into football and I found out that that was kind of kind of my game, you know, I was good at it. I loved being physical. And, and uh, <clears throat> well, my coaches used to pick on me because they would always say, you know, Frank, you're not fast enough to outrun nobody. So you just run over top of them like a tank. And then, you know, Frank the tank kind of rhymes, so the name just stuck. And um, so I was Frank the tank all through school growing up and um, <clears throat> getting into to wrestling. You know, one of one of our talks me and Jimmy Van had was, you know, what kind of gimmick do you want? You got to come up with a name. And I didn't know. I said, I'm a simple guy. I'm not flashy. You know, I just wanted to go out there and beat people's asses. I didn't really care how I dressed or where, I, how I got to the ring. Um, so he, you know, he, Boogie kind of brought up, well, your football days. What they, what they call you in football? Well, they called me Frank the Tank. Boom, that's it, Frank the Tank. So my first gimmick was sort of a military gimmick because Boogie kind of thought, well, you know, tank, you know, army tank. Let's let's kind of go with the military gimmick. So I, you know, my first matches, I started off wearing camouflage pants and black boots, and and I was wasn't in the military, and I always felt like that just wasn't my thing. Um, so you know, I I changed it as soon as I could and made it a little more simplified. But um, but yeah, Frank the Tank's kind of been my nickname since you know my old football days. <laughs> Frank, this is completely off topic, but it's just a question I like to ask some of the older older school wrestlers. But, you know, in, in WWE today, you never see the use of color, which was used quite extensively back, definitely back in mid-Atlantic. And when I used to watch uh, 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 CWF Championship Wrestling from Florida, sometimes it looked like a crime scene. There was so much blood. Um, what, what's your opinion on the use of, of color in wrestling? And uh, is it something that added to the added to the product? Well, I definitely think color has a place in the storytelling part of wrestling. Um, I have seen it overused, especially on the independents, um, you know, and we're all human. We all grow up as fans, and I love seeing that blonde hair of Ric Flair, just crimson red and blood running down his chest. And, you know, it just always was just so, just got me so excited. I just, you know, could just, eat it up and so you know there was times when i was on independence you know I, yeah i, I want to get some color tonight you know no, no real reason it didn't add to the storyline it's just something i wanted to do and uh but then as you mature and get a little older you realize hey, you know there's got to be a point in the time for it or it doesn't really mean anything if it happens so often and um, so, yeah, I've seen it abused, and I've even been guilty of doing it myself just because I'm a fan and always wanted to. But there is a place for it. But, you know, it, you know it's got to be um, the psychology of it has to be right. You know, I mean, you can't just – it doesn't make sense for, you know, the, the, the heel to come out here and bust the baby face open and make him bleed all over TV or all over the house show every single night because it's just killing the baby face. But, you know, um, 
when that heel does finally attack that baby face and then he, he does bust him open and hurt him, well, now you're getting the sympathy from the fans and they're really going to want to come buy that ticket to come watch that baby face kick that heel's ass for making him bleed. You know, so there is definitely a place for, for color, but um, it can be overdone, which I think kills, you know, kills the, the whole meaning of it. But uh, there's definitely a place and time for it, I believe. Old school WWF with Bruno used it for years where, you know, one of the matches, usually there'd, there'd be a three series match at Madison Square Garden. Usually the first match, Bruno would lose because the referee stopped it because of blood loss. And then Bruno would win the second match, maybe by a DQ. And then, the, you know, the final blow-off match, Bruno would win convincingly. And I mean, they, they used that formula for years, but you're right. It, it, if it's used too often, it loses its value. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think when you're going for color, in a way, you're going for that shock and awe response. You know, oh, my God, he's just busted him open. I can't believe it. Is he okay? You know, you're getting that – you want that shock response from the fans when they first see, you know, that blood running down his face. Oh, my God, he's hurt really bad. If they see it every week on TV or every week at the shows, then they get kind of desensitized to it. And it's just, well, he's bleeding again, you know. Yeah. So. If we're on the topic of uh... – personal questions or off-topic questions, I should say. Uh, I'm I'm based out of Virginia, and your tag team is actually billed as the first ever VCW, which is Virginia Championship Wrestling, the big promotion out here. You're, yeah. you, Death and Destruction was the first ever VCW tag champs. I'm wondering if you have any good stories from wrestling here in, in Hampton Roads area, because your, your build is from Virginia Beach. Yeah, um... <clears throat> Nobody, not many people had ever heard of Christiansburg, Virginia. So when I first started, you know, trying to come up with, you know, where am I from, you know, wanted to be from somewhere where people might sort of know where it was. So, uh, you know, I'm from Virginia, so let's keep it in Virginia. Um, I love the beach. So, hey, let's say Virginia Beach. What the hell, you know? So, uh, but yeah, I always loved wrestling in the, the Hampton Roads area. I mean, that just crowds were always so fun there. It just it seemed like different areas you wrestle in, you get different, you know, crowd reactions or the crowds want to see different things and you've got to kind of learn how to read those crowds and know what you what they want to see so you know what to give them. And um you know, going to you know, the Virginia Beach area, Hampton Roads area, you know, those crowds were always just so rowdy and, you know, just getting into the matches so, so heavy. And, I mean, there was numerous times that I'd have fans follow me out in the parking lot and <laughs> would have to end up getting, a, you know, a police escort to my car because uh, they were just wanting to, you know, stab me because of what I had just done to their favorite wrestler or whatever. That means so, you did a great job. Um, exactly. Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, I always loved wrestling, wrestling all through that area. The crowds were always so much fun. Frank, do you have, besides with Jimmy, um, I, I imagine you did quite a few road trips during your lengthy career. Do you have any really good road stories 
And even if you have to maybe change your name or two to protect the innocent. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll have to definitely put some thought into that. I thought or about protect that. the guilty, and maybe. It, <laughs> yeah, and it seems like every uh, every story, good story I come up with, has got some something incriminating in it. I got to be careful. Oh, let's but, hear it. Uh, <laughs> maybe off the air we might talk about those. Uh, but no, there's just oh gosh, there's so many of them. Um, you know, Boogie's always been into fitness and exercise, and you know I've kind of been in it, in it too. And uh, I'll never forget. And it's a short little story, but to me it it was it was funny. But once again, it was another teaching moment. Um, <clears throat> we're driving down the road one night, and it's I mean it's got to be three or four o'clock in the morning. And Boogie's driving, and I'm in the passenger side. I had just got finished driving. I'm trying to get a couple hours sleep. And uh, I happened to wake up, and I look over, and Boogie's in the driver's seat driving, and he's doing crunches in his, like, sit-up crunches in his seat while he's driving. And and I'm just like, Boogie, what in the hell are you doing? It's like 4 o'clock in the morning. And he was just like, you get your workout in when you can, kid. And, you know, we don't have time to go to the gym. We've got plenty of time in the car. So I'm doing my abs while I'm driving. <laughs> and so then, you know, without even realizing, years later, I'm driving down the road and I'm doing my ab crunches. And I don't even realize it because just something Boogie taught me. So I started doing <laughs> Um but here, here's a story. I'll tell you a story. I just popped in my head. Um, our first, me and Roger's first WWF match was in uh, Roanoke Civic Center. Jim Cornette was a, an agent at the time with him, so he had called us. We had done some stuff with him in Smoky Mountain Wrestling and, and uh, had, you know, worked with him on some independent shows. And uh, so he starts working for WWF, so he calls us up and he said, Hey, you know, we're coming to Roanoke. Uh, was like you guys to come up there. Can't promise you nothing, but I'll at least introduce you around and, you know, see what happens. Hey, you know, at least try to get your name out there. And uh, so we're, we jump at the opportunity. So, you know, we take off up there and, you know, had to be there at like noon and you spend all day there in production meetings and all that stuff. And we're just kind of hanging out hoping to get to talk to somebody and um next thing you know a few hours later out of the blue jim Cornette walks up to us and says you guys got your gear and we're like well yeah you know but he always taught me don't leave your house with your gear so i got it i always got it and he was like well go get it because i got you guys a match and we're like what the crap you know we wouldn't you know that's awesome who we working with um, we got you. The only problem is, uh, the only match I could get you is with the road warriors oh, wow. and they're probably going to beat your ass. Um, but if you're willing to do it, it's going to be a good opportunity for you. Well, hell, I didn't even give him a chance to get the words out of his mouth. I was heading to my car to get my gear. Um, you know, I didn't, you know, grew up, you know, as I mentioned before, the road warriors influenced my style a little bit. So, shoot yeah hey i don't they beat my ass all they want to as long as i can be in the ring with them so um so we go so we get dressed and you know of course we don't have no music so we go to the ring well this happens to be right after the road warriors got screwed out of the 
WWF tag team titles against uh, Generation X. Uh, Road Dogg and Billy Gunn had just screwed them over at a big pay-per-view, and they had lost the title. So the Road Warriors are pissed off at this time. They're just going to come to the ring and destroy whoever's in the ring. And, you know, I'm so lucky that it gets to be me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're standing in the ring, and here I am, Roanoke Civic Center, standing in a WWF ring, and I hear the Road Warriors music play. And all of these memories start flooding me, flooding my memory as a kid, you know, growing up, going to the Roanoke Civic Center to watch the Road Warriors. Um, I got another story about the Road Warriors, but maybe we'll get into that another time. But, but anyway, so, you know, growing up, watching the Road Warriors, going to the Roanoke Civic Center to watch them, and now I'm in the ring, their music's playing, and they're coming for me. You know, it was just like I was a kid in a candy store, you know, chill bumps everywhere, chill bumps on top of chill bumps. And uh, so here they come running to the ring, and, that, you know, we know they're just going to destroy us. But, hey, I'm going to get me at least one shot in before I get my ass kicked. That's what I'm thinking. So Road Warrior Hawk slides under the rope uh, into the ring, and I come with a punch, and that was the end of my offense. Um, they commenced to kicking our ass for the next four or five minutes, um, hit me with their big finishing move which knocked me out of the ring. Um, then they hit my partner with their big finishing move. And <clears throat> about that time, Degeneration X comes out on the ramp and, you know, they're flaunting their tag belts and they get the Road Warriors' attention. So the Road Warriors jump out of the ring and take off after them and the referee counts them out. Me and Roger get a win over the freaking Road Warriors wow. by count out. Uh, so, you know... <clears throat> I'm just on cloud nine by this point. I don't care about the win. I'm, you know, I just got to be in the ring with the road warriors. So we get back to the dressing room and, um, you know, me and Rogers are so excited. Road warriors come up to us and, you know, they're talking to us. We ask them for some pointers and they give us a few little tag team pointers. And, you know, they're so nice and helpful and friendly. And then they go off you know, on their own to change and shower and stuff. And then we go change. And about an hour or so later, Road Warrior Hawk walks past the little dressing room that we were in. And he looks at me and he kind of motions for me to come follow him. And I'm like, I'm going to follow Road Warrior Hawk anywhere, anywhere. So I take off. He followed him to catering. And uh, he looks at me and he said, all right, kid, I'm going to teach you a very valuable lesson right now. And I'm like, yes, sir. I'm all ears. Yes, sir. He, he unzips his wrestling bag, opens it up, stands up, reaches over on the catering table, and there's this big metal tray of chicken breasts that, you know, they feed all the wrestlers, and I guess this was some stuff that was left over. He grabs this big tray of chicken breasts, dumps the whole tray in his bag, zips his bag, backs up, sits the tray down, picks the bag up, puts it over his shoulder, looks at me and says, never turn down free food, and walks off. <laughs> valuable life so, lesson there. Very valuable. <laughs> so there was, a, you know, learned so much. I got to live a dream that night and learned to never turn down free food. 
and obviously at 280 pounds, I already knew that. <laughs> so, uh, but I've, I've kept that my entire life. So you offer me a free meal, you pretty much bet I'm going to be there. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I want to flip this a second, and this is more just my morbid curiosity than maybe wrestling stories. We talk about your time in the ring with legends and and uh, work you've done with various legends and Hall of Famers and just all this, the, the positive side I want to go the other way for a moment. One of your matches that, uh, and if you don't want to talk about it, I'll fully understand, that's memorable for maybe the wrong reasons is you happen to be the beneficiary of the only televised match featuring a wrestler named Mike Staples, who it was the, it was the very set, it was the second ever TNA show, and he wrestled under the name Cheeks, and... I'm pretty sure he was out of breath coming through the curtain. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you could, if you could put us uh, just kind of the, the, the pitch, how that, how that all came about, because that's one of those just moments that, that from, from a promotion that was really popular that people still, Oh my God, you remember that the, the their early shows when they had guys like him. And I'm just kind of wondering if you could, you could tell the story. Cause that's always been a, that their early shows have always been a guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny that uh, Mike Staples' Rolling Thunder is what he wrestled as on the, the independent circuit. Uh, and uh, me and Rolling Thunder, he lives in Roanoke. Um, so, you know, we live close to each other. Um, we ran into each other several times on the road wrestling and become buddies and traveled together a lot. And uh, he... He had the connection with TNA. He was able to uh, get me and him a tryout match. They loved him because of his size. Um, you know, he was 500 pounds and could move pretty good for a 500-pound guy. Um, when he was 400 pounds, he could do a drop kick, which was amazing at his size. But once he bloomed up to 500, he couldn't quite do that anymore but he could still move very well he was you know a very athletic guy and uh they wanted to try to come up with a gimmick for him uh they wanted him to similar to uh the rakishi type gimmick with the butt cheek in the face and and all that that's kind of the the idea they had they come up with the name cheeks um they wanted him to wrestle a guy that was big that would put him over, make him look good. And me and him being buddies, he, he, you know, put in a good word for me and was able to get me on there in that match. I was just, once again, at that point, just thankful to be there, you know, pay-per-view, um, you know, big crowds, you know, great experience. Uh, you know, some legends were there that I grew up watching. That's always a big thrill. And uh, so that's kind of how we got there. Um, but the funny part is, is actually being his match was, in all reality, the first ever TNA match. Because at that time, what they would do was they would do two pay-per-views in one night. So they would tape a pay-per-view, which would air the following week. And then, then they would go into the live pay-per-view that was airing that night. 
So they would do two pay-per-views in one night that would cover them for two weeks. Well, me and me and Rolling Thunder's match was the first match of the taped pay-per-view that was going to follow the following that was going to air the following week. But in all reality, it was the first match on the first show of TNA, if that makes any sense. No, it does. So but, the uh, very first uh, match so, they, they ever had. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was uh, like I said, it was taped. So when when you watch it on TV or watch it on pay-per-view, it's the second week. But in all reality, that was the first show. They just taped it and aired it the second week. Um, but uh, the funny thing about that match is the very first TNA match, you know, me and Rolling Thunder, he was a nervous wreck. I had, you know, I was fortunate. I had done some WWF stuff and some Memphis stuff. I had a little bit of experience. He didn't. So he was a nervous wreck. And, you know, I, was, I told him before we went out to curtains, you know, I always called him Thunder. And I was like, Thunder, just listen to me. You know, I got it. I'll walk you through this. You're going to look like a million bucks. Just listen to me. You know, so he was like, okay, you sure, you sure you got me? And I'm like, don't worry, brother. You know, I've been here before. I've done this before. Just listen to me. We're good. So, um, you know, we went out. We put on the match. The end, when he shoots me in the corner and he comes to give me the big butt splash in the corner, he actually breaks a cable that was under the rink. (laughs) So the ring posts kind of bow out. So we finished the match. Well, then they had to stop the show, stop. This is a tape to pay-per-view, so stop the tape. And the Harris twins, the brothers, they come out. They had to fix the ring before they could start with the second match. So TNA's very first ever match, me and Thunder broke their damn ring. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Betty, as we... uh get to wrap up here. You mentioned something before we started recording about uh, a local football team. I want you to get into that. Cause I think this will be a good, good one. Well, you guys are both uh, diehard Redskins fans. And um, so oh, I grew up, on, yeah. <laughs> I grew up on Long Island, New York and uh, went to St. John's university. And my, you know, I, I love my, my Redmen, St. John's Redmen. I think about 20 years ago, maybe it was even more than that. Uh, they changed from the Red Men to the Red Storm, and I, I don't—I still don't know what a Red Storm is. Maybe somebody can explain it to me. But now you got your team changing your their name, and I was wondering what you guys thought about that. I absolutely hate it. I hate it. I hated it from the beginning. I don't understand, and nobody will ever make me understand why we had to change it in the first place. Um, you know. It may offend some people, but, I mean, good grief. You know, it's a football team name. But either way, that's water under the bridge. I can't change that. But you had, what, two years to come up with a freaking name and you picked the Commanders? I mean, it sounds like a high school football team's name. Um, You know, I mean, I was rooting – the whole time I was rooting for the Red Wolves. Um, To me – you know, being a football fan, diehard fan my whole life, I just, I thought how intimidating would it be for the opposing team to roll into our stadium, 80,000 screaming fans howling like a wolf, 
you know, to me, that just it gives me chill bumps thinking about it. You know, it's almost like, you know, go to Virginia Tech games and, you know, they're jumping in the stands and singing Inner Sandman, and it's just such an adrenaline rush. And to me, you know, 80,000 fans howling like a wolf, you know, would just – would just be so intimidating it just i think it'd be great plus it goes with you know the whole theme song hell to the redskins you could still work it in hell to the red wolves uh and you know but the freaking commanders i don't understand that i I mean they're my team i have to root for them but i don't have to like their names (laughs) well i'll tell you um when when the list first came out when they broke down and they they confirmed it was I think twelve it was ten or twelve names and they said these are the finalists this is the one the board and all the committees this is this is the names they're picking from I I I, I can't I, I'm not lying I I can't make this up but when I saw that list I was like Commanders I was the first one I was like that is the dumbest that that that's got to be the 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 name they threw on there to distract us like there's no yeah. way they're picking. They're picking that generic, like you said, generic high school, and the logo being just the W. Like you yeah. had two, you had two years, and you came up with a with a generic football team from a game that doesn't have the rights to the NFL. Like that's uh, bad, bad, yeah, bad, it, bad. It, I know. I, I, you know, I mean, I know there was probably copyright issues there with some of these names, but I mean, good grief, you're spending millions and billions of freaking dollars. You go out here and buy the damn name off of somebody, you know, come, you know, but to come up with something like that, to me, it's, it didn't, it's like they just threw something on there. They didn't even give it no thought. I mean, the commanders, it's just so generic. Yeah. And, it, you know, I mean, aren't they going to be the Redskins to you guys always, no matter what? Like, always, to me, St. John's yeah. is still the Redman. Any- I don't care what they call them. Anybody that watches it, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Frank. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say anybody that watches a game or a Sunday night broadcast when they talk about or the Sunday morning broadcast when they talk about like the the, the games of the week at Chris Collinsworth, Michael Strahan, whoever, somebody will say the word Redskins at least once a week. I mean, I watch watch the games on TV and the commentators will slip up and say Redskins at least once. Like, yeah, I, I you know, they, they've been the Redskins my whole life, and I don't see myself saying commanders. I'll probably still say Washington or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they could have kept it Washington football team. I'd have been happy with that. I mean, but it's, you know, it's just, I just think it's ridiculous. I think that the whole thing is ridiculous anyway. I mean, people getting offended over everything these days. It's just, I don't know, but. Um, I'm old school, but I just don't see where it had to be changed in the first place. But, you know, if you got to do it, you got to do it. But, I mean, you had, like I said, you had two years to come up with the name. I know they could have done better than the commanders. Yeah, you'll, you'll get no argument from me on that one. Uh, Frank, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. You've had some great stories. We learned a lot tonight. Um, there's still a lot more to talk about. And Benny, uh, we'll definitely have to try and talk to get you back on. Uh, to talk more, but as we wrap up, do you have any, uh, any closing thoughts, any, any upcoming events you want to talk about? Well, um, you know, right now my life is, um, just so, so busy. I tell you, I'm raising my two nephews. Um, you know, I'm never married, no kids of my own. I've been raising my two nephews now for about 10 years. 
got one of them getting ready to graduate in May. The other one graduates next year. Um, you know, they're both into football, hoping to go play football at the next level in college. So my right now, my focus kind of is on them. And, um, I, you know, who knows what's going to happen down the road. But, um, you know, I just want everybody to listening. Just thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, and anybody that has a dream out there to be a wrestler, follow that dream. I tell my boys all the time, I was like, chase that dream while you can, because there's going to come a time where you're going to be too old to chase it. You're going to have other responsibilities, priorities in life's going to change. It happens to all of us. So chase that dream while you can. Um, dream's not going to chase you. So you're going to have to chase it. And, you know, if you get time to, to spend around a legend, especially with Boogie, hey, soak up everything he says. He, you know, he's done it all. We can only hope to do half of what he's done. So take every word he says and, you know, take it by the book because he's not going to steer you wrong. Yes, sir. Good advice. Very good advice. Frank, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, obviously, very busy man, and we'll definitely reach out to you and try and have you back on. I'm sure there's plenty more stories to tell. Oh, yeah, plenty of them. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. All righty. You know, it, it's crazy, Benny. Always, you know, we, we spent so much time since we started the show. It's come up a bunch uh, talking about the BWC and here in the first you know, hearing stories from their first student. But to think we've had guys on and, and careers that have gone decades. People like Jimmy with Jimmy on, he's talking about in the 70s, all the stories Frank has. And he started wrestling in the 90s in the scheme of some of the people we've had on the show. He's still a young dude. And look right. at the look at the life and career he's had. It's it's impressive and and crazy to think because he was talking about you know bouncing back and forth between uh, Virginia and Florida and Mexico, and he mentioned the tours in the you know, throughout the South and being in Mexico one day and then having to come back you know, two days later. You're in Tennessee. I mean that's that's when you hear the stories of guys wrestling 300 to 400 matches a year. I I just couldn't. That toll is is ridiculous to to just even fathom more or less to hear the stories to live it. It's just so cool. You know, we've had so many of these guys on and everybody has a different story and they're all great stories. But the one thing they all have in common is each and every one of them absolutely loves what they do. Yeah. You can't put yourself through that schedule without something driving you. It's almost like if you know anybody that's a, a cop or uh, a, a position like like a like a veterinarian or something that a teacher that's driven by just a special something. It's not the time or the money, especially not. I mean, he's talking about getting stiffed and getting paid in hot dogs. Like it's not the time or the money. It's it's the drive. And wrestling has that. I'm, I'm friends with plenty of wrestlers and they all that spark in their mind. They, they they love what they do in a way you can't describe unless you love something like that. And they never want to give it up. No, never do. I mean, look at look at uh, our the patron saint of our show, Dominic Danucci, wrestled in what was it six different decades? Yeah, almost seven. Uh, almost seven. And and if if he if he hadn't ducked your challenge, he would have. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, if 
you know, he he was too scared the 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 uh, of of the uh, of the Ocala special or or whatever your finishing move would have been, Benny. Yeah, well, we'll leave it at that. That 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 sounds great. <laughs> but um, no, I I I mean nothing but kind words to say about him. But but I mean, there's a guy who or or um. You, you you hear names, you see people pop up from time to time. Like you mentioned, Bruno, uh, names like Wahoo McDaniel, and and these guys that could just uh, currently today, people like the Rock and Roll Express, who still on on their now they're on their farewell tour, but they'll pop up from time to time and have a match and sell out a building somewhere. Thirty years past when they the average person would have retired, and they're still bringing the houses down. Well, Mike Jackson is wrestling in Alabama in April. I think he's like seventy-four. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, you, you, like like I said, it, it, it's you cannot describe that spark to somebody unless they've had it themselves. They'll never fully understand. But that's absolutely part of why. We, I mean, even with the issues, and you and I have been critical of some of today's product. It, wrestling is something that you can't. There's no other form of entertainment that you can love like that. No, it's a very special thing. It's certainly a special thing. Benny, as we wrap up for the night, do you have any uh, final thoughts for the crowd? No, I just, there's so many, like I said, you know, there's so many guys like Frank Parker and Jimmy Gennetti and, you know, all these guys and uh, Buck Bresner have these great stories and they all, they all love what they do. I mean, Buck, I think is 52. I, I think, um, I think Frank's the same age. And I think Jimmy maybe maybe be older than that. And you know, the any other fifty year old former athlete is probably sitting on the couch, you know, reliving their yep. glory days. And these guys are still making memories. It's just amazing. Yep. And it's I mean, clearly the the seat this all this time we've been thinking, you know, something in the food, something in the job, and maybe I just wasn't moving enough goat uh moving enough mountain goat manure to, to build my stamina that was the problem was, if i'd done that, that was, i'd be in better shape now i i got more than I bar- we got more than we bargained for with that goat story hey you know what that was uh that's a mr miyagi method so definitely you know, paint paint the fence and and shovel the everything yeah <laughs> Always, always fun. Well, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spasciano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Good night, folks.